All right. Welcome to Founders Field Notes, the podcast where you can learn from founders how to be founders. I'm founder and CEO of Klugonics Group, Jason Klug, and serial entrepreneur. On this week's episode, we have Tyler Green, the co-founder of Cash, a outdoor products company that has a very unique and well-equipped tailgate system for trucks, where basically you can protect your tailgate from mountain bikes, but at the same time, flip down your tailgate and have a ready-to-use pair of seats and a cooler. It's a very unique system. They call it a modular tailgate system that's very versatile and can be used in many different ways. Tyler also works with his brother, Dylan, and the two of them founded this company about six years ago, and we've been working together ever since, and they've grown quite a bit and have continuously perfected and made their product better and better as it's grown. And with this product being so special and unique, they've built some good relationships, which we can't talk about what they're coming out with next, but there will be a point if you follow them where you'll see an exciting announcement about a project they've been working on for the last year and a half. So Tyler's background, more being focused on the sales and retail side of consumer products, where he worked at a company a small sunglass company called Oakley. You may have heard of them. Uh, He worked the retail sales side of things for many years and also has experience selling dental equipment. So with that, you know, the ability to knock on doors and build relationships with buyers and dentists, he's developed great experience and able to sell his tailgate system to retailers, which is a new part of their business that they're growing on top of their e-commerce side of their business. And Dylan, his background is in website and marketing. So with the two of their skills combined, they're able to diversify and expand and sell in a variety of channels. So listen in and learn about Cash and their the products they've built, but also how they have taken their love and excitement around the outdoors and the experiences they've had in them and built their base camp system, which now a big part of their day-by-day adventures, whether it's skiing, mountain biking, or whatever, revolves around this base camp system. So listen in and enjoy. How long have we known each other? Seven years. Yeah, but I didn't meet you until you moved here. Mm, Or no, you came to visit. We we were in Chicago. I was living in Chicago, yeah. But you and Dylan, how did you meet Dylan? Through uh, Weld. Weld and Julian Carr. That's right. I was meeting with Julian about discreet stuff, and yeah, Dylan was there. Hi, I'm Dylan. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like and him. We're in the yeah. Weld office, and yeah, you know, and you were just by yourself. You were Klugonics, uh, or were you consulting, or what no, were you I doing? I was Klugonics. Wait, I think I was like in the process of quitting my day job. Okay, maybe, but but I met Dylan. It was probably. A year before you guys really started. Yeah. I th- I think. Yeah. Because I, I had met Dylan a few times at the Weld office. And then I think Julian Carr sent me an email introducing Dylan to me because it was because he want you guys wanted to make the truck pad. Yeah. And he was like, Yeah, you know, D- Dylan, you know, wanted to meet you guys, or or I wanted to introduce you to Dylan because he wants to make something. Yeah. And that was the Gator Guard. The Gator Guard. That was the, the, yes, that That was was the very first, the Gator Guard. 
and I and I still have Dylan in my phone under his name. It says Gator Guard. Really? So every time That's he calls funny. me, I laugh at that. That is funny. Yeah, but no, that was uh, back in twenty, That's like sixteen 2016. or fifteen. Yeah, twenty sixteen, I think, is when. So that would have been, I would have been, two years into this. Wow. And you were just by yourself, or you had no, a couple had, other people. Uh, David? No, not yet. I, I, or he might have been just starting soon after. But I know I had. I think even Ed started working for me then. Was Aaron there? Sam. Okay, Sam. That's Sam right. Sam did those original sketches. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, because I was trying to pull up dates, and so I just went back, and it was like in a completely different email. And the very first email that I have from you is for a bid. So we must have talked. Mm-hmm. And then I got a bid from you June 16th, 2016, mm-hmm. which is really fast because we met and started, maybe I'm getting ahead here, but we started like conceptualizing the idea over Memorial Weekend of 2016. Mm-hmm. So at the end of May. Yeah. And I was still living in Chicago at the time. Yeah. And Dylan was in Salt Lake. quick. You know how we roll. Yeah. Okay. So, but let's go back to 2010 when you worked at Snowbird. Oh, wow. Okay. I got a whole, <laughs> I got Cora since I've been nice. gone. Since nice. I've been gone from Maui, she's been nice. stalking you. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. So we go back to Snowbird Sales Associate. <laughs> what what sales does Snowbird associate. sell? Ski tickets? Uh, you sell one-off ski tickets? Uh, Can I, I interest uh, you in a ski day? <laughs> I worked at Snowbird at uh, at the main lodge there. When you walk in, there is Wings gift uh, like gift store on the right, and then on the left, it's this always revolving retail store. And so I actually worked in then the cool store, so like mm. the apparel. Yeah, yeah. But they also sold Sam goggles cool. and yeah. yeah. So great company, um, yeah. and I've obviously known them forever. But God, that's funny. Uh, I jacket. I mean, by working, I was kind of in college, kind of in flight school, and working at the cool house, I guess, as a sales associate. I'd love to know what I put down in that description. It's all it says, sales associate. Yeah, no, uh, that was, yeah, good time. Uh, Sunglass hut? Yes, oh my God, yeah, sunglass hut. That was a good time. Uh, Very short, uh, very short stints (laughs) at these jobs that must not have been long-term. No, you know, but they laid a pretty solid foundation. I'll say it's Snowbird. I think it was, I got a free pass. I think I read like seven books in whatever time frame that was, because... You'd get a rush in the morning, and then no one would come into the store for like six hours. Mm-hmm. So I'd just sit there, and I'd like to think I was doing homework, but I that doesn't sound like me. So Yeah, I didn't and, do homework either. No. And then Sunglass Hut at the Gateway here in Utah. Yeah, the and, one that's separate, like the one yes. that's propped up on the— Exactly. Yeah, um, when so the that, Gateway was popping. The Gateway was popping. Pre-City Creek. <laughs> Pre-City Creek. City Creek wasn't around, so I worked there for— Oh, God, I don't know. Yeah, it couldn't have been very long, but I was working there because I I had really gotten it, you know, even, I want to say 2009, I actually had an interview with Oakley to be on their field marketing team. And they must have not known that I was 19 years old because mm. he couldn't have done that job unless you were 21 for minimum. And so I was like, all right, I need to get some retail experience while I'm, I guess, going to college. And so that's, Snowbird is great. Um, you know, we've skied there forever. And then Sunglass Hut was like, all right, I'm going to like learn about sunglasses and retail. And I actually, I crushed it. Like I did really well. Mm-hmm. 
And it, like, you know, I mean, you, you learn a lot in retail, very similar to like being a server. I don't know if I have that on my, on my LinkedIn, but I was a server also at a country club. I did club. that too. Yeah. Um, but yeah. People no, skills. Yeah. People skills. Sunglass Hut was great. Um, you know, and you meet all these different people and yeah, you sell a lot of sunglasses. So I did, I actually did really well there. Yeah, but then you, then you, that's like a shoe in to Oakley when you get there, but we're not there yet. No, you've done, you you had a job a year, it looks like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you're a ramp agent. Ramp agent. uh, U.S. Airways. I don't even know of that airline. What airline is that? U.S. Airways actually bought out American Airlines while I was there, but U.S. Airways was like a large, primarily East Coast um, airline. But they were all over the world. And so I got a job there because I moved to North Carolina and I was just kind of doing a mental reset, moved out there with my dad. And it was an awesome job because, I mean, I barely, I, whatever minimum wage was then, that was definitely like $7.50. And I would maybe work 10 to 15 hours a week, but I had free flight benefits domestically. Mm. And then I could go to Europe for like, like I remember one time I went to Spain literally for 26 hours. And I think the ticket was $27 around trip. But I did that, $27, $27 because Holy you only cow. had to pay the taxes. And so I went over there. I don't think I slept maybe 30 minutes and just hung out, traveled, discotheques. But I would do that a lot. So the job was, you know, you're the baggage handler pushing back, you know, uh, airplanes. And I worked at Greensboro. And then I also moved over to Charlotte. And then I really only quit that because after they started looking into purchasing American Airlines, uh, they wanted to unionize. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't really want to work full time here. You know, I'm just doing mm-hmm. this for the flight benefits. But I love that job. Uh, I really enjoyed the hands on part of it. I mean, you're, you know, you're working out in the middle of the summer. It's like super hot in the winter. Like you're up in the little icebox thing, you know. Oh, that sounds awesome. It was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it was like one of those jobs, like you didn't realize how good it was until you left. Yeah. Obviously, the flight benefits were great. But yeah, that was a, that was a good little Certainly not a career move, but uh, it allowed me to fly all over the place. My then girlfriend, now wife, I actually couldn't even afford to drive to see her like three hours away, but I would get in an airplane and fly down there for free. Mm. And obviously you're on standby, but yeah, I I did a lot of traveling doing that and it was fantastic. Highly recommend that to anyone in, in college or who has a little bit of time. So yeah, that was great. That or working at a golf course, I feel like, too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Certainly. Or a ski resort. Ski. I mean, it's about the benefits. You know, it's the same that's thing. Snowbird was a ski pass. Yeah. Sunglass hat. I think I made okay money, but it was just like to get experience. But mm-hmm. yeah, the airline was awesome. I mean, you're. I was 21 years old then when I first got the job. And I could fly anywhere, really, that they had seats open. And I did. I went all over Europe and uh, all over the United States. So it was a blast. I took my... One of our very first dates with Carolyn was actually because she was on a buddy pass. We went up to New York, had lunch, and then flew back. That's crazy. That's a great date. That was fantastic. I went, that's when I moved to Utah. Mm. From Georgia? Yeah. That's cool. That's 2011, 2012 season. And then you started working at? I worked at Canyons. Really? So you, oh yeah, I forgot about that. A lift op manager. And you got a pass. I would manage the, I would, or I would, I was like, you know, basically the dude that would snowboard around and yeah. give all the lifties pee breaks and lunch breaks. That sounds like a great job. So I got to do like 15 laps a day. And this is when Canyons was still Canyons. Yeah. And you just give people pee breaks. It was owned, owned by Talisker then. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. No, yeah. I had the best runs of my life ever because there would be, you know, like the days where, uh, 
where it would dump and they call you in early and yeah. you'd get like, um, you know, like the bomb squad would have to go up, right? Yeah. And we would have to go early to get up the lifts to let the, the ski patrollers up to bomb. Nice. And so we would have to be on the mountain at like 6 a.m. Yeah. And I remember taking powder laps in the dark yeah. with like a headlamp to get to the lifts. That's awesome. That's but, fantastic. But, you know, so at like 730, 8 o'clock, the sun's rising. Yeah. Still have an hour before opening. I would still get like two, three laps in. You're just ripping. And I remember like the runs that were like, you know, the black wide open runs that had no trees on it. Yeah. Just like two feet, you know, snow just like deep powder, <laughs> wide open pow fields. Yeah. Where I would just like be alone, not a single human anywhere, and just have a perfect run. And, and I would get just, two or three of those before opening. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the jobs that you kind of look back and you almost don't realize how great they are at the time. Or maybe oh, yeah. you did, but I had no oh, idea. No, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. I think I went like 130 days that season. Where were you living? In the valley? Downtown. Yeah. Oh. Sick by by like Liberty Park. So cool. is that what it's called, Liberty Park? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I forgot that name. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for you. Yeah, those uh, those days. Yeah, you're right. Like you look back and you're like, okay, I enjoyed it because you get the social life. Yeah, the social know? life. And also, yeah. I was like, I was riding up. Uh, I still, I've got a season pass to Snowbirds. So I still go there a lot. And I was riding up with this guy who was a cat driver, and we we're just like talking, you know. And I wasn't talking about what I did, and he was just describing it, and I was like. Man, that sounds like great because like when you're done with work, like you're done with work. Yeah. You know, and obviously now, you know, having a bit of a, take a relative home. experience. Yeah, like there's nothing to take home. So mm -hmm. when you're done, you're done. Yeah, very stressful. Um, so I remember when people would complain, yeah. like other lifties and stuff, I'd be yeah. like, dude, this is this Are you cake. are you yeah. really complaining right now? It's yeah. Like, he's yeah, like, like, I didn't get enough breaks today. It's yeah. like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, it's how uh, was it sitting in your warm little <laughs> lift house and eating your peanut butter and jelly sandwich after you took a few laps? Was and, that difficult to get paid to do? And what you, are you doing yeah. tomorrow? Oh, you're off, you're gonna go skiing yeah i was gonna free? say and then you go oh. skiing for free tough yeah tough you get your uh, discount your employee <laughs> discount at the lunch shack and get your sandwich for 50 percent off or whatever like, i mean come on yeah but yeah. at that time i remember snowbird had a similar thing and i like whatever they were paying me i remember thinking all right well i really still can't afford anything here but at least you know i could maybe get a beer or something but yeah i would splurge a little bit and yeah get a sandwich a bit. once a week yeah once a week maybe we do like four 10 hour days yeah you know they're big days but yeah i remember on the off days you know and my buddy colin who i who moved out here before me and then i followed him because he had a room for me to move into yeah at the house that he was staying at and I remember we would always like try to time our off days yeah. and we would get, you'd get passes to the other resorts, you That's know, cool. as well. Like they would do like buddy passes or whatever. Yeah. So you get like a free, I think I skied once at Deer Valley. That was That's the only cool. time I've ever skied and That's I taught cool. myself to ski. Yeah. And we would time our days off and, and, uh, those days were so fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause we knew the mountain so well. So we knew where all the good stuff was. Well, and especially, you know, I mean, I took it for granted growing up where we did in Sandy. And so like, we would just kind of grow up always skiing, snowboard, always having passes. My mom worked there so that we could really get passes for a while. And, you know, growing up here, like I was glad that I left, like living in North Carolina and Chicago and a couple other places. But, you know, to like come back and realize like, oh, my gosh, like this is unreal. So mm -hmm. like to have you have the experience of not being from here, coming here, really mm -hmm. being a ski bum, I'm like, that's awesome. That was great. That's awesome. And I got that job with Scotty. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, our boy. 
All love right. Scott Paul. So, yeah, we'll get into him in yeah. a little bit. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're a podcast. You're a broadcast journalism intern. Mm-hmm. What the hell? Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> a little detour. Uh, yeah. Um, so this is Bart tied to your schooling that you're so doing. This is uh, yeah. So the great my reset of Utah, Sunglass Hut, Snowbird, and then I moved to North Carolina to kind of do a reset. Started going to school. There's a community college in Charlotte, and I remember I had I must have quit the airline at that point. Because yeah, you had had to because you had three jobs that year. I did, yeah. But the, <laughs> but the great part about it, you know, because it was like, I mean, everyone at this point was like in their junior year. And I remember thinking, you know, it's hard not to compare yourself at 21. And I had a girlfriend, my now wife, that was like about to graduate like Sigma Cum Laude and like already had a job. And so I remember thinking, I need to like get it into gear here. So I went to this great community college in Charlotte, Central Piedmont Community College. I was paying my own way. And I remember walking out of the library and seeing this office that said, like, intern placement office. And I remember thinking, okay. And so I walked in there and like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I don't really know. I'm studying communications, whatever the hell that means. But I was kind of starting to float a little back into like acting and modeling. And that's a stupid thing. It's easy money. And there's a lot of work in Charlotte. But I was always kind of interested in doing like broadcasting or something in journalism. And so, yeah, so they got me a job at PBS Charlotte, and I actually worked under the, I guess he was the general manager for PBS Charlotte, and I did a bunch of things. Like, I went on to, like, video shoots. I used to, like, edit scripts. I mean, it was, like, a very... And I did a couple other internships where they were completely useless, but this one, actually, like, they would put me in an office and they say, hey, like, watch this video, write a script, and then get it back to us. And, yeah, it was was a great opportunity. It was a lot of fun. And But so... And then you did that for what a few months, and then a few moved. months, must, yeah. I think and I then got you're like, okay, credit. let's go back to the intern office and go, get a job in the uh, footwear industry. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that one was funny because I, I, yeah, and it's funny. Like look back, I had a lot of jobs, especially in Charlotte. That one was funny because I was actually working at Dick Sporting Goods as well, part time apparel associate. I'm sure that's on there. You, oh, you know that's on here. Okay, cool. Yeah, so Dick Sporting the way Goods that, yeah, so Renaissance Footwear in. Uh, just outside of Charlotte, I'm working at Dick Sporting Goods. This guy comes over. I'm helping him. I remember pick out a North Face jacket. He starts talking to me about what I want to do. And he goes, well, I just invested in this footwear company. And if you're interested, like we need a social media person. And like, we'll bring you on as an intern. And I must have just finished the PBS one, which is unpaid. And I vividly remember the guy goes, yeah, like we'll bring you on as an intern, work as many hours as you want a week. We'll just do like 15 bucks an hour. And I remember like, almost laughing out loud because I remember thinking like, that's, that's like, good money then. That's crazy money. Like, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, again, going from airlines must've been $7 sunglasses. For an, must internship. Have been for an internship to basically launch their social media platform. And Renaissance was a licensing company that did all of the footwear, this tiny little office that did all of the footwear for this little company called Walmart. Yeah. And so they did all the collegiate licensing footwear, like slippers and things like that. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. so they had an office in Charlotte, and I helped to launch their social media. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they were paying me money. So that's and, a good experience. Yeah. I had a little office, and yeah, it was cool. A little cubicle. And then you work for a sports team? 
Uh, yeah, then the Charlotte Bobcats. Um, as no, it a, says the Charlotte Hornets. So it was the Charlotte Bobcats, and then they changed their name to Charlotte Hornets eventually. Was the Bobcats offensive? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, perhaps. Maybe that's why. They, no, it was because they used to be the Hornets. It better, you know, it's a better name for them. But um, okay. that was, I remember I was watching a lot of Mad Men at the time. I don't know if you watched that oh, at all. Oh, yeah. I've, and, yeah. like, you know, the suits and everything. And so I go to interview for the Charlotte, then Bobcats. And, like, it'll be a team with a group sales internship. And everyone's wearing, like, a suit and tie. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I'm, you know, feeling like Don Draper. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a great experience to learn that suits don't really mean anything. And they're very uncomfortable. And they, yeah, it was, I got to meet Michael Jordan a couple times. I went to a really? lot of basketball. Yeah, yeah. met what? him. Met him, like, in the employee elevator and not, like, you know, it was more like, thank you, Mr. Jordan, for the opportunity. But One of those awkward elevator rides with him? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, but hi, it was cool. I'm it, Tyler. Yeah, it, hey. yeah, it was kind of like, hi, thank you for the opportunity. I know you, you don't need to introduce yeah, yourself. No, yeah, it was like, yeah, Mr. Jordan, we're good. So, uh, I that's, like your shoes. Yes, that's, yeah, I can't afford them, but, yeah, they're cool. So that's about all that I did there. That was one of those internships where you're like, all right, like, cool. I guess I learned a lot, but I also learned, like, okay, don't need to wear a suit to be successful. Mm-hmm. And that might sound small, but like at the time, I remember oh, no. thinking like suit and tie. And I so, made that decision cool. in the third grade. Yeah. Personally. Well, yeah. Good for you. Yeah. I was, I was locked into uh to mad men a bit much, but yeah. good opportunity. Yeah. Got, went to a bunch of basketball games and that was cool. That's so, sweet. But that was a grind. That was like watching these guys make like 50 phone calls a day. And yeah, that was a, uh, yeah, good opportunity. This is interesting to go back through this with you. It is. Because I always I think about, about this in a long time. Well, it's good to, the, and the reason why I like to go through these two is thinking back to like what shapes the experience. Right. And from this, it's looking at it, it's like very broad bunch of experience. So it's it's like if you're not actually doing all the little items it takes to build a business, you at least have to manage them and yeah. understand how they work and connect together. It, it helps you get the ability to lead it and manage it, which is you have to know what you're doing to actually direct it properly. So that's cool. Absolutely. Because then you go, and then you get more of the sales experience, which mm-hmm. is what I've known you the most for. Mm-hmm. Dublin Dog Co., dealer services rep, so you're selling dog collars and stuff. Amazing job. Yeah. Awesome job. I remember you mentioning that. And yep. then you got the gig at Oakley, which yep. you told me was with your brother, Joe. Yeah, he he helped, and luckily the person I that, he was on the interview, right? Yeah, so just messing with you. <laughs> yeah, that was actually after. Long story short, after I got hired at Oakley, he pulled this prank on me that I'm sitting in HR at Oakley, had just gotten like my dream job that I've been like grinding for for years. I just gotten married, so like I got the job, I got the wife, I got the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Got like you know good salary for like starting out. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like in HR training and this person that I don't know comes and taps me on the shoulder. My brother played a a prank on me that basically it made it sound like I was going to get fired and that they were letting me go. (laughs) And he was the guy on the speakerphone who was supposed to be the general counsel and they pulled this whole prank. And then at the end of it, he's like, yeah, Ty, we're just joking. (laughs) And like, I was like about to have a heart attack because I'm sitting there like, at headquarters, I don't know anyone, and I'm like going through my brain thinking, my wife just quit her job because like I started this, and like she's taking, t-. and I was just tripping and you out. Just but, moved to Chicago for that, right? Um, I was. They just moved us from Charlotte to Raleigh, which obviously oh, okay. is not very far, but yeah, yeah like I started Still a whole moved. life, like yeah. got this really nice. Te- yeah, it was. <laughs> so yeah, good. Uh, good on my older brother. That was pretty funny. So, but yeah, great. Uh, 
I mean, really, Dublin, I'm so glad that I got the opportunity that I did at Dublin Dog because I just want to shout out um, the guy that ended up hiring me actually went in for a part-time interview for another company that was part of this portfolio as a part-time customer service rep called Mountain Khakis Mm -hmm. based out of Charlotte. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in the interview, and this is like I just got my two-year degree. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And halfway through the interview, the the woman just goes, I think you'd be better suited in like a sales role. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Then this guy comes in and his name's Jason. And he starts talking to me about how he just sold his company, Dublin Dog, to this parent company. And he goes, so now we're really like, I have all this capital and he's like a serial entrepreneur and has done and still doing a bunch of other things to this day. But I, for four months, I, you know, basically just called on pet stores and, you know, small apparel companies or small apparel shops all over the world just selling like a $35 dog collar. Mm-hmm. And it was so great to have that grind for four months and to also watch and work with a guy that had just sold his company, but was such an entrepreneurial mindset in the best sense of just grind, grind, grind. And he told me, he's like, it's, he's like, you're joining a company that I now have capital to do what I really want. And so, I mean, we were going all over the place traveling. Like we do these, you're seeing like the dock dog jumps like where the yep so we'd go That's to those sweet. we'd sponsor it was cool mm-hmm. yeah and then i get the job at oakley where like it's not yet you, you still had to sell the brand but like everyone knew what it was yeah and so to have like grind, 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 and then come in and you're like you know pretty much like hey we're here you know mm-hmm. you have to respect us and it's more about what you're launching this year versus what hey you please are. buy us yeah, yeah like you know i mean they have obviously it's a fantastic company and and awesome product, but I was glad to have had that four months of like grind. No one knows who you are yeah. and we're really expensive. Please buy. But I, I, I did good at that. Yeah. Those no's are valuable though. Oh my gosh. It was the best. You know? Yeah. Cause yeah. had I started, I think straight at Oakley, like I probably will, would have only ever known yes yeah. and massive budgets and all that stuff. So it, it was a great opportunity. Excuse perception to be an entrepreneur. It does. That many yeses. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> Versus the 99% no's. Ni- yeah. 99.9%. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Jeez, that's, that's fun. So you did, did you go to Super Zoo and Global Pet Expo as well? Yes. Yeah. We did those. Yeah. My very first good shows. professional trade show was the one, what's the one in Orlando? That's Global Pet Expo. That's Global Pet Expo. That's a yeah. good show. That was a good one. That was yeah, down. Hunter yeah. goes to that now. And yeah. The Orange County Convention Center. Yeah. yeah, then Super Zoo is a good one as well. Yeah, that one's uh, that's the one in Europe, right? No, it's in Vegas. That's the one in Vegas. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, the Europe one. That sounds fun. Yeah, that was. I didn't. I only lasted. I was only there four months, but I was supposed to go to that. But great, yeah. great job. That yeah. was cool. Okay, so that that makes sense. You get all the nos at Dublin. Yep. Dog Co. Mm-hmm. Respectably, right? Yeah, respectably. Um, and then you're at Oakley, and uh-huh. you're there for a while. That's right. When I met you, you're at Oakley. Yep. Yeah. So when we met, I was on the field marketing team, and at that point, I was living in Chicago, and that was a great job. It was like a mix of like sports marketing, where you'd go to the major events, and then mm-hmm. you would be selling stuff. You know, like. I don't know, like I went to so many different PGA, you know, shows and, you know, events and a lot of fun, but, you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, definitely a grind in the sense of like, at one point I was working throughout about seven states in the Midwest, but at a company truck, 
we didn't have any kids at the time. You know, we're just living in Chicago and yeah, big city life, big city life. Yeah. Live, you know, taking the, the purple line and yeah, my wife was working at Northwestern at the time and it was great. I had a, I had a ton of fun, but it was always like you were in charge of, you know, the sell through, not the sell in. Yeah. And so it was a lot of training and again, you know, just going and representing this, you know, world renowned brand all over the place and yeah. some pretty amazing you know, experiences with that. So you work in Oakley. Yeah. Couple years. Yeah, about almost then, four, um, I think. Yeah. Then quickly, you and Dylan come up with the lockable truck pad. Um, yeah. While you're at Oakley. While I'm at Oakley, uh, me and my wife, we fly into LA and then we drive up to Bishop, which is on your way to Mammoth on the 395. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go, we went to go visit my dad mm -hmm. and our stepmom because he was living there. He was a pilot, but it like had some time off or something. And, and then Dylan was living in Salt Lake and then he flew to Oregon to interview with Yeti. Mm. And Dylan was like working in bike shops. I think he was maybe even in college at the time. I think he was at Weld. And or at Weld, maybe interning Weld or working starting. there. Yeah, That's was, right. Yeah. But for some reason he went out to Yeti and it was kind of like my job. And I'm sure he was like, Oh, you know, I want a, you know, company car and whatever. So he went and did that. And then I remember he flew into Reno and then drive over to Bishop, this tiny little town. And I mean, really, when I look, and I've told the story a number of times, obviously, but like when I look back on it, like Dylan and I, he came to me and he was like, I just, I've been going through my head about ideas. And then he goes out to Yeti, he turns on the job, obviously, but he was like, I just heard about these two brothers that started this company. And obviously, you know, multi billion dollar company mm -hmm. now publicly traded. But he just like, honestly, I mean, and I'll totally credit Dylan as my, you know, I mean, him and I were less than two years apart and now been business partners for six plus years. But, you know, he was the one that really kind of was like, I have an idea. What do you think? And I don't remember ever being like, oh, I want to like start a company. But I remember seeing Dylan's like passion and thinking, well, that's cool. So then basically for like two days, we were talking about it and like, how do we do that? He brings up this guy that he had just met out in Salt Lake named Jason, who like was a product development guy or something. I didn't mm -hmm. know what you did. And basically, and it's, we actually do have the original notes and the notes were not like so much about the product is more like trying to find a name. But Dylan had this idea for a tailgate pad because he'd been a bike mechanic working in bike shops about a tailgate pad that would lock to the truck. Because mm -hmm. the issue was that people would buy, I don't know, we, we can throw out brands here, Dekine, Yakima, yeah. you know, they were all just sitting on trucks and they all kind of looked the same. But the issue is that you can just walk up to it and still the same today with those guys is that you can walk up to it and just take it off the back of the truck. And then I remember my dad and Dylan and I very late, I'm sure plenty of plenty beers deep, just kind of having this concept of like, what else could you do? And that's where we started thinking, well, you would want chairs on the back of the tailgate, like when it folds down and why not have a cooler? Mm -hmm. And that's really where that started. So that was Memorial Weekend 2016. And then, like I said, I looked back through the emails and our very first meeting was June 16th, 2016. Mm -hmm. and that's when you and Dylan and I started coming up with this idea. And we had, to, we had no idea about what it would cost. I mean, it wasn't like I was planning or saving for that. I had savings, but that's like where it initially started. Yeah. And then you sent us over the, you yeah, had the original rendering for what I guess we were calling the 
the scab. And I don't the even gator think, guard. The gator guard. And then I have it in there as the scab. So we must what have been. What does the scab stand for? Did, I, was it an acronym? I think it was like, I think our idea was that it was like a scab that you peel off and that it's protective. I don't know. That's dirty. For, yeah, it's very dirty. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's all part of the brainstorm process. So I think I like gator guard better than scab. Certainly like uh, the base camp pad, base camp system now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's where it started. So yeah. that's 2016. But 2016, we just had a drawing. We just had a drawing and a, an idea. Yeah. And I think to get to work with you, that I do know is that Dylan and I just... I thought Dylan sold his camper. Dylan sold his camper, and then I just dumped everything that I had in savings. Mm-hmm. And we literally just said, all right, let's do this. And yeah. we did, like, I remember like maybe getting a quote, and then, yeah, we just went for it. Yeah. So that was 2016 to well, get a tech pack started, I believe. Yeah. But well, let's see. So we did the concept sketches, which had the flip up seats and everything. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you guys had a big life event. Yeah. You see, so, you guys paused. When was that? It was January 23rd, 2017. Our yeah. dad uh, passed away suddenly and uh, he was a pilot uh, and mm-hmm. he died in an airplane crash. And I remember you guys paused for a bit. Pause for Obviously. a Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, actually, your your take on that. Because well, I, I remember you guys paused, which obviously I remember, and I remember contacting you guys, and yeah, it was sad. No, and, and, I, and I've told this story many times that I give you full credit to be the first, you know, because no one knows what to say to you. Yeah. And well, no one, I mean, and rightfully so, you know, I'm sorry, but that's from a personal standpoint. And then on a professional, I always give you full credit that you were the first person to like ask us, like, are you ready to do this again? Well, I saw it as something that because your dad was always part of the conversations. Right. Right. So I remember when, let's see, it would have been a few months. It was, it was like, what, four or five months after? Yeah. I would say. Yeah. And I had like a little patent event thing going on. Yeah. And I invited Dylan and you. Dylan showed up. Yep, that's right. Whenever we got there, gave him a hug. Yeah, that's you know, right. I was happy to see him again. Yeah. And yeah, it was like, I remember just being like, well, like, <laughs> let's, let's keep, get it going yeah. again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Time is, time is right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And the timing was because at that point in 2017, in I want to say August, I I had always wanted to move back to Utah, but that that's right. The same similar time frame. That experience certainly, you know, I mean, what I'll just my two things on it is it was terrible. It's not part of the plan, um, but yeah. you certainly get a lot of perspective. And as I look back on it at twenty six years old, then to have that, I mean, the perspective that I got was like, man, like time is very important. And so my wife and I just started looking for jobs to move back to Utah. And so that's when I took a job to move back to Utah, left Oakley. And also kind of always part of it was like, well, if we're going to do this thing with cash, like I need to be in Salt Lake. Yeah. Like, we need to be close Closer to do to family. this. Yeah. Close and to your family. And close still to the- here at the time. Too, Our right? mom, she was in Sandy. Uh, no, she she'd she been in, yeah she was in, in Sun Valley at that point. Oh. So yeah, so my wife and I moved back, and then we bought uh, our first house in Cottonwood Heights, and mm-hmm. we were five minutes away from Dylan. So yeah, yeah, but it was certainly you know a big a big life change in the sense of everything within a year. And then it was um, go time, and then it was go time. But yeah, to totally credit you, you were the first person to be like, "Are you guys ready to keep going?" Mm-hmm. And it was yeah, it was great. So and then. Yeah, I had to build a tech pack and build a prototype and all that stuff, which took yep. some time. Yeah. But we were all gearing up for the Kickstarter. Yes. And I remember, well, here's the chain of events that I 
can't remember is when did I introduce you to Scott? Was that after Kickstarter? That was before. It was because, before Kickstarter. Because after you kind of came to us and, and you were like, are you ready to go again? And then the reality of next steps was, okay. We needed some cash. We needed some cash and we did not have any yeah. personally. And, and I remember so, being like, okay, well, let, let me make an intro. Yeah. And you and I went to the Protein Foundry. And, and I was like, Scott, just give these guys a chance. Let's just listen. You just made some money. You, and, the, you know. and the very first thing that Scott, and I and I loved the, uh, his podcast and interview with you on here. And I love Scott Paul. And it's one of those people that I will never forget him. He's everybody's favorite weirdo. He's everyone's favorite weirdo. But, um, but Scott... And Dylan and I very weirdly have this, I think, kind of connection because he had worked at Anasazi, which is a wilderness therapy program that Dylan and I had oh, actually yeah. attended. Yeah, so I remember the, that you being were the like, bad kids that we went. were the bad kids, but <laughs> it was an awesome experience. Yeah. Six weeks living in the desert. Mm-hmm. So, but it's one of those places like, you know, when you go there and you meet other people, you're like, I know what you went through. And, but anyways, but I do vividly remember Scott sitting down and be like, yeah, Anasazi, cool. And his very first thing, she goes, he goes, you know, I'm not really going to like invest in this, but Jason, wanted me to be here so like let's look at it Mm -hmm. and Dylan wasn't available he must have been traveling so it's just me you and Scott and like an idea and, and I remember you, you being all nervous and me I being was like, super it, nervous. I was of like, course. it's just a chat with Scott. He's fine. Don't well, he's, yeah, he's, but, <laughs> but in the back of my mind and thinking, if this doesn't happen, what the hell are we, you know, what are we yeah. going to do? And so Scott started it by saying, you know, I'm probably not even going to invest, but I'm doing Jason a favor essentially. And then by the end of it, I remember like watching him and I do remember him saying, how much do you need? And we went over that. And I do remember a- him saying, do you, would you take Bitcoin for this? This yeah. is 2017. And I was like, I don't even know what Bitcoin is. And well, that's when it was, it was peaking at the it point. It was peaking. And, it was like, and, what, and I remember him going, no, that's not a good idea. So let's look at a cash option. Yeah. But yeah, so that was Scott and his investment enabled well, the timing us. was good because he had a bunch of funny money. Exactly. At yeah. that point, because he, yeah. he bought in Bitcoin like under two grand at that point. Yeah. Good for him. And then he, <laughs> it was up and he's like, oh yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. All, that's when yeah. he gave money to discreet and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. And like me, you know, well, so he was, he was starting to dabble in the angel investor yeah. thing. So the timing couldn't have been better because he doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. Probably. Well, I wouldn't say smart, but I mean, what I'll say is that, I mean, God bless Scott Paul because he certainly helped enable the next, mm-hmm. you know, series of events. Yeah, but, the, getting but, the Kickstarter, getting the prototype dialed. Getting the patent work started. Getting the patent dialed, which is valuable. Uh, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you don't know, obviously, much like anything, but you don't know how valuable it's going to be until, you know, until later. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, God bless Scott Paul and his, and his investment. <laughs> yeah, so you got that money. That gave us the ability to finish the tech pack, but then yep. also finish... The first couple rounds of prototypes. Yeah, and and prototypes that were actually, um, and obviously it's even evolved since then, you know, which is normal. You go through making prototype B1, which is enough for you to create video content to sell it. Right. So you, I remember we created that one hand sewn in Salt Lake. <laughs> that was great. You know, was which great. is actually turned out, it was pretty good. It was prototype, pretty good. Yeah. You know, but it, it was like something to be like, well, let's test this and let's see if it works. And mm-hmm. Sarah. Yeah, Sarah. She, she, she does a choose made. Choose made. So that's she right. has her, uh, she does purses and little bags and yeah. stuff. But yeah. she's also, she's messaged me since then and said how appreciative she was because she was just doing like, 
you know, hustle stuff as much as she could, like yeah. farmer's markets sure. and stuff. And I would bring her these projects where she would have to like apply her skills in different ways. Right. And now she has a, a day job where she does like a lot of what we've done, oh, cool. you know, so, and she messaged me and she's like, you know, appreciative of the opportunity of her getting the ability to like learn how to make stuff like that. Yeah. And I always appreciated that message she sent me because I look back to that project and we did a few others with her, but like, I mean, that's like a challenging thing to figure out is go off of like a, a tech pack and create by hand a cut and sew <laughs> soft good yeah that's like that that was that's like a big that. thing yeah that we was had to yeah. route the wiring oh my around gosh. it yeah. I mean, there was like a lot going on there with was the a lot. cable and and then also figuring out how to make it fit on the majority of trucks which right. is always going to be a challenge yeah, st- still, still to today, this day right yeah you know especially with as trucks have changed so much yeah yeah that was a great experience and it then was. looking back to that uh, Kickstarter you guys did, <laughs> which is yeah. great. Cause at that point, well, it took a while to develop. And then I had done my Kickstarter for, for dry. And I it, remember I like, I learned a lot. That's right. Yeah. And then I, well, did, I can't remember. Did I do mine before no, you, you guys? You, you did it after. Yeah. You did yours after, but you had obviously had experience. I'd done a lot of Kickstarters with clients. That's and right. Yeah. And so yeah. we went into it and I mean, again, shout out to you. I mean, you've always been kind of a cornerstone of the company, but like you were always like, Hey, here's an idea. Hey, here's an idea. And obviously we were doing the same, but yeah, the Kickstarter was when we realized even after raising the money with Scott and then some family and friends. And I will say this and shout out to my in-laws, Sandy and Mark Donner out in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. They were the very first people to ever contribute money. Mm-hmm. They sent us a thousand dollars. And I remember the note was like, we don't want any equity. Here's your start. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that one day I'm able to write them a, a check for not only a thousand, but a little bit. I have given them two very cute grandchildren, but I did just <laughs> want to shout out to Mark and Sandy Donner because great. they were the first people that enabled. They basically paid for the flight to come out and meet you the very first time when I was living in Chicago. That's great. So anyways. Cool. Yeah. Yep. So when did that Kickstarter happen? That was so, uh, end of tw- or end of, it was in 2017. Right? It was in 2017. So we moved pretty quickly. Yes. Yeah. No, we moved very quick. And From when we picked things back up, we picked things back up. And no, actually, it was 2018 when we did the Kickstarter. Okay. I remember filming it in July. Yeah. And our friend and guy that did all the videography it was just hotter than hell. And I was inviting all my friends out to like stand in 110 degree heat. Yeah. Um, but it turned out really well. Yeah, we did. We The goal was 50,000 in 45 days, and we did over 53, but we only got wow. to that point on like day like 42 wow. is when we hit the goal. Barely made it. It was a stressful experience. That's a good Kickstarter, though. It, yeah, first one, I thought that was pretty good. You yeah. know? And we started it with no digital ad campaigns. We yeah. start, and it was like five days in, we're like, all right, we need to like... Yeah, you ramp know, it up. You ramp it up, so... Yeah, and um, even that timing was good because... Kickstarter these days are way harder. Yeah, that's what I've been hearing. Yeah, it's just like you you can't run a successful Kickstarter without really dumping money into ads. Yeah, because I remember we spent 10,000 on ads and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, and now... Five X return, that's pretty good. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, like knowing what I know now for a product that didn't exist and like Mm -hmm. a sample that was... Pretty niche too for the platform. Very niche, very niche. So I look back at that thinking of how like the, you know, you've got to be a truck owner. Yeah. You got to be a mountain biker. Mm -hmm. Majority of the buyer would be a mountain biker. Yeah. I've actually... pretty niche for the platform, which is really good. 50K is... 
huge. Yeah, 50K. But again, I vividly remember just watching, you know, and anyone that's done a Kickstarter understands you're just watching that number and you're thinking, and you have to be, this isn't going to happen and we're just going to lose it. Mm -hmm. So I can remember on like day 41, day 42, when it finally did happen. And I remember just bawling my eyes out, calling Dylan, we're crying, you know, all this stuff. And like, you know, so I've actually met people in person at events that were like, I was donor number, you know, whatever on your Kickstarter. Yeah. And they're still obviously, like you said, like the sample that we were even trying to sell evolved, rightfully so. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's amazing, you know, to think about people that have, and I always try to get on there and, you know, it's not like I really need anything on there, but as a way of, you know, kind of paying it forward. Yeah. I still Um, back them. Yeah. No, I think I've backed like 130 Kickstarters. You've done a lot. I've maybe done like five or six, but I'm like a super backer. You're a, you're a big time. Do you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. That's funny. Super backer badge. That's funny. Actually, I get notifications when you back Mm. because they must know that we're connected or something. I haven't done in a while. Well, yeah, yeah, you could follow me on the platform. I'm sure you follow me. Yeah. Yeah. The last couple of them, uh, I don't, half of them didn't ever get delivered, but I got some. I got one in the back, this injection molding machine. Really? That's cool. I backed like years ago. It was like three grand. Oh, nice. And I was like, oh, this is a big risk. That's but a I'm big risk. It. And I backed it. Oh, my it, God. Wow. And the dude delivered. Good for him. He did, yeah, a small shop, handmade huh. inject. And if I show you the thing, you would not think it's like a handmade really? machine. It's very good. Yeah. 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 Kickstarter. So you get some of those that surprise you. And then still today, like, I'll get a package in the mail. I'm like, what the hell is this? And, you're like, and it's like, oh, yeah, I backed that on yeah, Kickstarter two years yeah. ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, because we were, exciting. you know, our delivery date, I think that we were seven months behind. From when we said that yeah. we were going to deliver, and then again, anyone that's ever done mass production or a Kickstarter well, knows that that's the reality. Well, it always ends up being way more expensive. Way more expensive. Because 50K is still, is still not enough to bring it to market at the end of the day. No, and that's when we also realized, like, okay, that's going to get us X amount, you know, for, I think our first MOQ was like 500 units. Mm-hmm. And we must have gotten close to that, but then we also went and, like, raised more money. Yeah, you kind of— But Kickstarter, yeah. as I look back, our strategy, if there was one— It's a valuation was, stepping stone. It was a validation that this is working, that people want it. And then we always knew, I guess we found out that we needed to raise more money, which it was the validation ticket. So we mm-hmm. ended up utilizing that to up the value and, and actually raise more money after that. Mm-hmm. It like gives you the ability to go to investor and be like, look, we have some sales. Yeah, yeah exactly. Saying, we got an idea. Sitting down at Protein you know? Foundry and, and this guy just, Scott Paul, just, you know, he's there to, you know, mm-hmm. to, to humor you. But uh, yeah, it was it was a very intense experience for sure. And that's the thing, though, that a lot of entrepreneurs might not know or realize when they're raising money. At some point, they think, okay, I'm going to get one investor to give me 200 grand. Right. Never really the case. It's no. usually the family, friends, yep. and you piece it together. Yep. And, you know, you'll get. 10K in and then 20K from this person and then a 50K check will come yeah, that's exactly. and you stack them up and then eventually you get your full amount, Yeah, yeah. which is more valuable because then you get more advocates yeah. to lean on you do. versus just getting one investor, which one, might yeah. not add value other than money. Well, yeah. And I remember someone vividly, um, you know, obviously there were a lot of people that said no, but I can remember some really good advice in terms of raising money is that a lot of people have money, there's good money and there's bad money. And what they mean by that is that the good money is the people that will be your advocate, your partner. Hopefully they've had those experiences so that you can actually be, you know, go to them and whether it's you or Scott Paul or someone, you know, because mm-hmm. I remember Scott Paul, I remember calling him and being so stressed about Kickstarter being late. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can remember Scott saying, don't like, you know, I'd never done a ton of products like you're doing. And he goes, but 
just don't freak out. Like the time that you think is so, and I was like, oh, that's great. And then on the opposite side of it, you know, you have the bad money, which is the same amount of money on the check, but those are the people that are grinding on you and just, you know, wanting to take control. And that's not to say that you don't bring in people that are on your board to help, but those are the people that are going to be like dogging you every second of the day, which doesn't mean that you don't need to have somebody, um, you know, holding you accountable. But, you know, especially in those infant stages, like you want that good money investor that's like help building you up, adding value outside of just the financial part, because anyone that has raised money or has started a company knows that that's the other big part of it. Like this person, Dylan and I together, and shout out to you and anyone that's like started a company by themselves. Like there's so much to do that you don't realize is going to happen. And then you get into the situation and it's just like, you know, so it's nice to have people that have done it, that are successful and that can give you like very sound wisdom of, you know, like, Hey, like I went through it. Here's what you should do. Yeah. And then there's other people that, you know, like I'd call and I'm like, you've done this and you know, and some of them were helpful and some of them weren't, but yeah, um, that was a, a really important lesson that I think about often. Yeah. Everybody gets their different ways. Yeah. You know, yeah. This story for cash is more similar to like derive for me, but obviously like Klugonics was like, <laughs> just, I mean, <laughs> Straight up, I had to get a deal to pay the bills. Yeah, I couldn't raise money. There's nothing to raise money for. Yeah, except for Scott gave me 20k. But that's also <laughs> because he underpaid me at his job that the company that he sold. And you know, I just basically convinced him that he owed me one. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's hilarious. That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. But um, you've certainly come a long way from uh, from the early days of of our meeting. So congratulations. Oh, yeah. yeah, we can. Those those basement meetings. Those were fun. Those were fun times. They're still fun now, but there was something about it. Yeah. Yeah. So then we go, uh, Kickstarter launches successful. Mm-hmm. You've got, you got 50K from that, which all in ends up probably being like 40K. If that. Yeah. Because yeah, all the, or paying off the ad credit cards, it's like yep. you, you walk away with like 35K. Yep. You still have a minimum order quantity of a pretty high price item. Yeah. So it's still like a lot of units that yeah. you're, you know, and then you can't just buy the bare minimum no. to fulfill your Kickstarter. You need excess inventory so you can continue to grow after. Exactly. So you're then on, like, there's, there's this weird feeling after Kickstarter. It's like, awesome, we did it. And then you're like, but it's oh, like, oh sh- now we're committed. Oh shit! Now it's on. Yeah, like now it's like people gave me money. Yeah. I got to give them a product, and yeah. I need to find another eighty grand or whatever yeah. it might be. Right? Oh, and I've never actually quoted the container price correctly, and you know, yeah. so, and then uh, yeah. that, you always get surprises, <laughs> and especially when it's your first product. I mean, I even did it with Dry. Even after it was like making tons of other products, it was right. still like, oh wow, that's more expensive than I thought. Oh, shipping to the customer is way more expensive. Oh than yeah, I yeah, yeah. It's like I, it, I, it all I have adds a, up. <laughs> I have a quote that I remember we estimated shipping. We didn't know where what, what we were doing, but we estimated shipping for a full base camp system to be thirty five dollars. Well, did you go to like a UPS store? We and must like, have done that. Like that sounds good. Yeah, and they were like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I remember. So that was a learning experience. But um, yeah. So, but much like anything, you don't know, and you're just excited. And but there is certainly that feeling after you hit it of like, oh, like we really have to do this. Mm-hmm. Like it's for real. Yeah, but you 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 found the money. You found yep. another investor. Yep. At this point, you had validation. You had found a supplier, and we already started working through the involvement of yep. it to make it more. You know, that's when we got into the thermal forming mm-hmm. and adding the bumpers yep. and making it just a better product. Yep. 
And we're also going through patents at this time as well. Yeah, finalizing. Which happened very quickly. Going from, to non-provisional yep. and all that stuff. Yep. What did you get, like 150K or something 150K, like that? 150K, yep. So you got plenty of cash to get the first version to market. Yep. We get production done. Yep. And you fulfilled before the following bike season, didn't you? Yeah, we fulfilled. Of course, it was late, so we fulfilled in September. Oh, so it was towards the end so of the bike like season. So it was towards the end of the bike season, but yeah. you know, we were thinking always about like, well, this will be like outside of just biking. This will be like for Apre. And again, mm-hmm. at that point, we were just like thankful to have hit a Kickstarter, but then the reality of like, well, now we need to really start selling. Um, and so really, we were at the end of bike season, but then leading into holiday season, which helped a lot for sales to kind of get us off the ground. But again, it was like, we didn't know about fulfillment. Like I remember we, we moved three PLs two or three times because we didn't realize the cost that was associated with it. It was like all these things that like we, we had to put the product somewhere. We couldn't put it in our garage. And then we go to one place. It's too expensive. We almost, I think we even got kicked out of one because they're like, yeah, this is too big for us. They shut down or whatever. They shut down something. We moved to this other one that I won't name names. That didn't really work out. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up getting our own. I remember we moved product like into my garage for a bit before we actually got our own warehouse space, which we still have today, which has Mm -hmm. been Awesome. But it's just all these things. Cram it in there. Just cram it in there, which is, I mean, we literally got an electrician to raise the lights. And yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a great office, but it's much like anything. Like you don't know what you're going to run into and you can estimate it. And obviously, you know, hindsight or whatever. But I'm like, there were just so many additional costs, you know, and then you fast forward into 2020, like no one told us what was going to happen. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, yeah, we were in a really good space. Um, but you know, you're still juggling personal life. You're Mm -hmm. still juggling, you know, at that point I just had my first kid and, you know, obviously a bunch of other stuff still going on, but yeah, we figured it out. We, we got product and we were selling, we got a website and we're moving, we're moving stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I always think about as a case study, just cash in general mm-hmm. with the sheer volume and like size of the product. Yeah. And I remember thinking through with you guys the number of units per pallet in a oh warehouse. So it's like yeah. 36 units or 32 units per pallet. Yeah. And you think you're paying in a 3PL, you're paying a, you know, $10 a month fee per pallet. Yeah. You know, so it, but, having only 36 units per pallet. It adds up. That adds up. Significantly. You know, and obviously you got your shipping fee there and then you got your pick and pull fee and all that stuff. And, you know, it's just not something that you think about until the numbers are actually laid out on the table. Because <laughs> in fulfillment centers and stuff like that, they'll have a hard time giving you an initial quote because they right. don't even think about it. They're just looking for customers, yeah. especially like a new one like they were at the time, right? Right. But, um, or at least that one example. Yeah. So, yeah, that's always something difficult. So when people come to me with a with a product that's big, I always think back to that. And I'm like, well, yeah. let's think about this. Yeah. You know, does it need to be... That big? Like, can we flat pack it? Is <laughs> yeah. there a way to make it some assembly required? Right. Right. You know, let's just think about the volume of this thing and how that's going to palletize and yeah. what that'll look like in a palletized yeah. Yeah, format. Yeah, there was no cell on our original um, on our original Excel document on total cost of goods sold about palletizing. I mean, we mm-hmm. we thought we knew. 
Yeah. But we didn't, you know, you didn't know. Mm-hmm. And now we know and we've mm-hmm. learned from it and made adjustments around just shipping in and of itself. Yeah. Now you pack your containers to the brim with no oh pallets, gosh. all that stuff. No you, pallets. Yeah. You basically unload the container right into your warehouse and stack it to the ceiling. Stack it to the ceiling. And it's probably not OSHA compliant, but no one needs to know about that. No, OSHA's, <laughs> OSHA Schmosha. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's still small <laughs> enough too where it's like, you know, yeah. The yeah. container load of, of, Chairs and coolers, yeah, and a container load of pads is normally what you do, right? Yes, so exactly. technically two containers, two containers, yeah, and and yeah, and we actually, I mean, yeah, our last containers that we shipped and arrived was at the very, very, very peak of the last, you know, yeah, the like whole container, two thousand bucks or About something, thirty six thousand after <laughs> oh. it was all said and done, yeah, and it's you know, so and, and obviously another variable that no one could play was the import and everything, and mm-hmm. again, you just you just work around it and you figure it out. It just um, changes. The, but the thing that I always say is when you're building and preparing your unit economics around the chaos of inflated yeah. importing prices, right. and then when things came down, if you prepared and sustained throughout that side of things, yeah. a huge health boost that companies got when things went back to normal. Oh, yeah. I you mean, know. now it's like, you know, not being like, oh, we can get through anything, but much like anything difficult in life, you look at it and you're like, well, we did that. And now we have a better experience and better knowledge and mm-hmm. move forward and work around it. And, you know, our uh, newest version of the pad, obviously, you're very close in alignment of developing that. Like a big part of it will be how we pack it. And mm-hmm. that'll save us significant amount of money and also be a better experience for the customer as well. Mm-hmm. But all things you don't you don't you you don't know what you don't know. But now we do and make it work. Yeah. So now it's got, you know, the thermoform padding that. Is acts as a nice bumper to protect the tr- tailgate. Yep. So that we've increased like some of the tech of it. Yeah, big time. Uh, the the lock system throughout the development. The first prototype, I remember we had a cable that surrounded the whole truck bed, and we yep. thought that was necessary. Yep. Nope. Later Turns we learned that. that it wasn't. Yep. So now we have a riveted base to it that mm-hmm. the lock is mounted to, and then we have a cable that just comes from the other side. Yep. So it's still cable locked. Like, it's still hard to get off because yeah. you're either breaking through stainless steel rivets, cutting the whole pad, making it not worth it to sell, Yeah. Um, or <laughs> breaking the lock, which is pretty bulletproof. Well, yeah, the lock in it, like the carabiner, I mean, I don't even, you'd have to really do something. But in terms of, you know, we actually had a, uh, a real life customer down in San Diego. He sent us pictures, his car got broken into, and he sent us pictures of how they were trying to get the pad off. And it was like what we thought was always going to happen. You can get it off if you really want to go after it. The whole point was a that. big cutter though. Yeah, a big cutter. But mm. you could tell this person that was probably on some sort of drugs or whatever, they tried to cut through it. They got through, they couldn't get through the cable and mm-hmm. they, you know, they took the other, you know, siding clips off, but like they couldn't actually get through it. And he sent us a picture and it was like, ha ha, it worked. And we're like, great. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up just sending him a free pad because he That's also had like nice. a $60,000 truck that got busted into. That's but good marketing. Yeah. But, no, it, but it was, it <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like our patents are around, you know, the lock itself and then the, the Molly webbing on the inside for the uh, detachable accessories. Mm-hmm. So, Which, but yeah. But the lock in and of itself is its whole own project. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dylan went over to our original factories because I was actually having my kids, so I didn't want to, you know, stress out on that. But, you know, kudos to Dylan for developing relationships while he was there. And I hope that one day we can be back there in person, Um, you know, but just seeing it in person, something that I've never done. But kudos to Dylan for developing relationships because we've ended up increasing, you know, overall 
factory, uh, you know, upgrades with how it's done and the people that we're working with. But it's a lot that goes into, uh, you know, a little a little tailgate pad. Mm-hmm. And anyone that's made a product knows that. But uh, yeah, it's been... And we're not just making a tailgate pad. We then have a detachable chair and then a detachable cooler as well. And uh, certainly we've made upgrades, you know, from the original to the Basecamp 2.0 and then moving on to the Basecamp XL, which uh, hopefully uh, working with your team's fun. For those big, big boy trucks. For the bigger trucks, yep. So right now our pad's going to fit about 98% of every truck out there. It's going to be ideal for the mid-sized ones, but the XL will be, you know, for the larger full-size trucks. Mm-hmm. So full uh, full coverage on the back and a couple other additional upgrades. So Yeah, because the difference of those tailgates is astonishing. Yeah, and it always changes. and you know, It's and impossible you, to hit the whole market. No, it's impossible. So, the, but, you know, I think starting with like the medium small size was smart because mm-hmm. you hit the majority and even the big trucks can use those yeah they can they just can't fit as many bikes as they could if they had it fully covered exactly but, but uh yeah. yeah base camp xl coming summer 23 well, that's soon <laughs> i knew that you were gonna say that uh yeah we'll call it uh late summer early fall 2023 yeah and then the the chairs are unique because it's like a stadium chair. Yep. But I remember when we were developing it, the stadium chairs that were all out there were very like thin and would cut into you a little bit. Yeah. Yep. And we we decided that making it just thick and padded and comfortable was more yep. valuable because it was more about comfort sitting back there than it is, you know, like you're not rolling it up and then taking it backpacking. Yeah. Like, this is something you you it, you can take it off and yeah, use can, it. Right. And you would bring it into a stadium and yeah. be way more comfortable than the skinny thin ones that right. are for packability and stuff. So yeah. that was also a big value. And then you've learned over time that the chair by itself is its own product well, on yeah, Amazon. Like we were not expecting it to ever take off. And that's the lounger chair. And so when we started selling on Amazon, which was just kind of like, hey, let's try this out. And the chair started selling like crazy. And I remember like we were never planning that, never thinking about, you know, we're just going to sell chairs. But that's been a crazy success on Amazon. And now it's a whole product. Well, just call it customer segment for us that we actually recently just brought on another team member to really just handle e-com for Amazon. And Mm -hmm. that's primarily around probably 85% of our sales on Amazon are the chair. Mm-hmm. And so that's the full system. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to the full system. So, yeah. So that just took off and it was one of those things where we had no idea and it's mm-hmm. yeah, thankful for it. But um, yeah, the accessory also, because it gets its own life. Exactly. Yeah. Which is very cool. So, yeah, it's been a fun experience. Yeah. That's been great. Yeah. Now you guys are like in sustain mode, right? Where you've you've the products gotten to market. This is back in 2018. 2019, you're you're focused on selling what you had left over from the Kickstarter Mm -hmm. and then the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. and supply chain started getting crazy and stuff like that. So it'd be great to go through like the learning lessons that you've gone through during that time. Cause obviously that was hard for many businesses yeah, and even harder for a business that has one can fit very few items in a container. Yeah. Uh, And then two, very seasonal product, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about that. Cause that was, there's a lot of challenges that you guys went through there. And at the same time, I remember when we were golfing, we were playing Glendale and we were, we were talking about it and I was like, 
guys, I don't think you realize how hard it is right now. <laughs> it's gonna, it, and they're like, well, we need to get this, you know, we need to do another run and we want to yeah. update it. And I was yeah. like, then we should start now. Yeah, of course. And, yeah. and then, you know, at the time you guys are like, we'll figure it out. We'll get it here by next summer. And I'm yeah. like, okay, then we need to start yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think we started a few months later, but yeah, yeah that was a... Uh, that was a tough time for a lot of people. <sighs> yeah. Um, so at the end of 2019, um, I remember that we did actually get another shipment of product. Mm-hmm. So we were like pretty fully loaded. And it was yeah. just to get product there. And then fast forward to March 2020, pandemic starts. And the biggest benefit was that we still had a, a lot of product left over. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward into April, all of a sudden we just were, we start, I think that we started running a couple of ads. Like we'd never really done that before. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden sales just took off mm-hmm. and it was amazing. I mean, at that time we were also really focused on, you know, our retail space. We had had a number of really great sales reps. We still do, but, you know, we're much more e-commerce focused now, but like sales just took off. And part of it was everyone's outside. Everyone's got stimulus checks. Yeah. And the other companies were out of inventory. So because like when we had ordered, like we were overloaded on inventory in our eyes. And then all of a sudden it just like exploded. Mm-hmm. And like we were fulfilling orders. I mean, I remember just like, <laughs> I mean, laughing, thinking, wow, this is just going to go. And at the same time, you know, we were kind of like being like, well, we want to make some upgrades to it. And that must have been that conversation where you were probably thinking, I'm sure you do it with a lot of your clients, like this needs to go now. You don't realize how long it's going to take. Um, and then fast forward into 2021. Remember January, February, things were still going really, really well, but it started to become apparent that like we were going to run out of inventory. Mm -hmm. And because of the investments that we'd made in other areas and, you know, margins starting to shrink a bit and then prices starting to increase for shipping, we ran out of inventory. So that was towards the end of 2021, we literally had no pads left. We only had chairs. Mm -hmm. And so then beginning 2022, I remember we fulfilled our very last Amazon order just for chairs. And I remember sitting in our warehouse thinking, oh my God, like it really is empty. And like, I never thought I'd see it empty because we were always into this day, just like stacked to the brim. And then we ran out of all inventory, January, February. And, and you were but, doing other creative ways of selling your accessories too. Yes. You were yeah. doing branded chairs. Yeah. You were doing coolers. Yeah, ton side of custom. Sales. Yeah. I mean, like these yeah. opportunities that were coming up were, you know, I guess to get back to your question, things that we learned from it in any general. Any entrepreneur will take any opportunity. Take anything you can. Yeah. We had like, you know, I mean, we started doing like corporate gifts. Like, yeah. you know, we had a really large real estate company here that was like, oh, we need like, it was like a $30,000 order with like mm-hmm. custom coolers. We're like, yeah, sure. We'll do that. And you're just chasing after it and then you don't realize, okay, well now we just lost like, you know, 250 systems. Well, I guess we'll just sell the chairs and the pad. And so inventory management was non-existent Mm -hmm. at that time. And at the same time, we were also developing the Basecamp 2.0. And so that we really launched the pre-sale for that in February, 2022, but we didn't have inventory and selling for quite some time. And so it was no inventory, which means no income, expenses are still there. Mm -hmm. And we finally got new product in May, 2022. And that was a Basecamp Mm 2.0. But that was also delayed shipments, uh, $36,000 a piece for a container, which is a huge, lot, huge. And we had to order two of them. And so that was a very stressful time in terms yeah. of having to go out and raise additional money, getting unsecured loans, you know, doing some things that 
I know that we had to do it, but I was never planning on doing it. But you had to do it to cover the, yeah. you know, to cover the cost. Mm-hmm. So, and also at the same time, our minimum order quantity went from 500 to 2,000. So it's just everything that quote unquote could stack up against us did. It was like inflation. But at the same time, we're coming off this crazy like year and a half of sales that were just like we couldn't stop selling them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, yeah, 2022 has been probably the greatest learning example of just like slowing down and evaluating not just what do we need right now, but like what are we going to need in a year and a half? Yeah. And I've probably said it too many times on here, but like also credit to you to step in as a friend and also, I mean, part of the company, um, you know, to be like, hey, like, let me help out. And I think that that's something if I could look back and talk about what I would do sooner is that I would, because I always felt like I was probably a little bit of ego in there, but also a, a sense of like, I don't want to bother these people. Like they've already like, you know, especially our investors, like giving us money. Like mm-hmm. they don't want to, you know, they, like they would assume that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, you know, it's <laughs> never the case. No, it's never the case. And so I'm very thankful that also, um, especially this year, I mean, it's only been, you know, a little over a month, but I'd say like in the last like four or five months, we've really started to strategize a lot more. And it's not like we were just, you know, flying off the rails, but we started thinking two, three years from now. Mm-hmm. And that helps a lot when it comes to, you know, unit economics, there's still going to be things that we don't know that are going to happen, you know, but now we can plan around that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in terms of kind of like what I learned through this whole process was just slow down as much as you can because you, you have to be fast. Um, you know, you can't just dilly-dally. And I think that there's probably a lot of people that, you know, are maybe engineer-minded and it's like, it's not that they're sales and engineer, you know, but like what I can do very well from the sales standpoint is like, okay, what do we need to do? Okay, go do that. You know, and as a CEO, I have a lot of fun because like I get to dabble in every little thing, but I've also learned that like, I can't try to control what's going on in marketing, you know? And so I trust that my brother, who's the CMO handles all of that, this new person that we brought on, but, you know, but still I'm very good at like exhorting people. And so I just find that that's what I'm good at, but I'm also realizing that people want to help. And if they don't want to help, they'll tell you, but you know, people, especially investors that have sold off multiple companies, like they want to be there for you. And that's something that I wish I would have done a lot sooner. Well, they want to return. They want to return. Yeah. Outside of like, you know, because the same thing with the Kickstarter, you know, or even when you're starting the company, it's like, oh, two brother company. And, you know, we have a perfect story. Mm-hmm. I mean, two brothers, mm-hmm. it's not like we're utilizing it, but like dad passes away, part of the company, we named a product after him. Mm-hmm. But then you realize now that people don't care anymore. But even as a customer, like after the Kickstarter, they're like, yeah, yeah. Like, when am I going to get the product? And with investors at first, especially when you don't have anything, they want to be there for you and, and they're investing in really two brothers with this idea. But now the reality is of like, no, like, I want to help you because, you know, we yeah. all want our return. You yeah, know, like, they have an interest. In yeah, which mm-hmm. is great. And it's not, you know, this like, you know, it's not like money hungry, crazy thing. It's just like you find out the business people like want to grow businesses. Mm-hmm. And I've just met so many people that whether they're multi-billion dollar companies I've had opportunities to talk with or starting out or hundred million, it's like every business person like is kind of wired the same. They might talk differently, but everyone really just like wants to navigate it. And you find out that it is a, it is a financial return, but people also just enjoy business like mm-hmm. in general, which I really do too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So now the the next, well, you've, it's funny because as I keep doing these episodes, I look up at the wall where the, the people have signed their books, you know, and a lot of the, uh, 
So you see Park it, Stephen Wilcox there. It says... <laughs> I, I remember Stephen... Made that intro. We never met when we were both working at Oakley. I made that intro. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nikki, Barber. I didn't make the intro, but there must have been because no, says, we're family it was friends. Danny. It was Danny, who's Danny our patent like, attorney. Oh, yeah. Connect with this guy. And that's what it Tyler was. Tyler and them. Yeah. Because um, I got an email intro from Danny, and I didn't know who Danny that's was. That's what it was. But because he was helping us with our together. patents, yeah, yeah. Um, so and then we found out soon after starting golf together that it was Nikki's brother. Nikki's brother, yeah. Funny. But she did an awesome. I just watched hers the other day. She yeah, did a great job great. on here too. But um, but, but but his but Stevens was bet on yourself, which is what you're doing by taking those loans out. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of good things there that that uh, popped up, and you have Scott's DeFi Jedi. What good value Lord. does that add, Scott? No, just <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, sick. That's great, Scott. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the, the so the big focus now it's you're in this this transitional period where, well, you, the similar experiences that like Nikki's experience that I experienced with Darai is like inventory issues are always a challenge as a new business, yeah. especially when it comes to like cash flowing it and figuring out debt resources to f- flow it. Right. Which is like hard to do when you can't have a good sales history because you stock out for a while. And <laughs> yeah. it, you know, like it yeah. makes it hard to have those conversations with those debt resources right. that look at like trailing twelve months sales yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but then there's other things you could do, like what you had to do. You take out, you know, whether it's a loan on your house or you reach out to the previous investors and ask them for more because yeah. you know that if you have the inventory, it'll sell. Yeah. So you're betting on yourself and yeah. betting on the product that you believe in. But then a lot of the conversations that are currently having is making things more sophisticated. Yeah. So it's more of a ready, aim, fire type mentality versus the, you know, get inventory and sell. Going, yeah, yeah. shooting from the hips yeah. where you just got to figure out how to get that product in your warehouse yeah. and then just start hustling it, yeah. um, which is good. And that's what st- sets a company up for more consistent growth. Yeah. You know, because it sucks when you gain momentum and then you lose it. And then you lose it, yeah. And you do it again and then you lose it. And that, that hurts more than, you yeah. know. Well, and it takes away, I mean, it's the when you're sitting in a warehouse that doesn't have any product and you're like, well, sh- we still need to like pay rent. We still need yeah. to like pay all these other things. And I mean, that was a scary time because mm-hmm. the the opposite of that was that we had like eight months of like, we could just throw it in the street and someone would buy it, Mm -hmm. you know, because no one else had inventory for the longest time. Yeah. But that definitely, and I'm glad it happened obviously because it forced us to slow down and then also get time to be like, all right, well, let's make the upgrades that we want on the product and let's like try to, you know, because Dylan and I run the company together and thankfully we've always had like an intern or two to help with fulfillment. We've had sales reps, but now, you know, we just brought on another additional team member, um, you know, gave out equity. And that was another thing that I learned was I sh- we sh- should have had that conversation a lot sooner because Dylan and I think just burnt each other out. And mm-hmm. it really is difficult when you're doing that. You're mm-hmm. dealing with family, you're dealing with a friend. Um, but, uh, you know, just... Just yeah. get, getting help, you know, earlier than than waiting until your warehouse is empty and you're like, shit, now what? Yeah. And I guess that's life in general, but building a business with a brother can, can be tough. I mean, I did it with my wife. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I uh, I oft, I think about you guys often, and obviously, it, yeah. You know, you guys have grown that business, and it's very exciting uh, to see that growth. But it's a yeah. lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It's ch- it challenges it's relationships. Tough. It does. 
you figure out more about each other's flaws than you do skills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The skills come up front. Yeah. But then the flaws come in after. Well, right? yeah. And especially when it's going great. And then, you know, but on the really, the hard days, especially when neither one of you, and again, kudos to you for like starting and running a business by yourself for so long. But, you know, it's like, even when there's two people, you're still like dividing up tasks. And when it's, you know, you're, I couldn't, you know, with your wife, which my wife, Carolyn, has done a lot for cash that she will never really get recognition for in the sense of going down to the warehouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, probably giving me tissues when I'm bawling my eyes out, mm-hmm. you know, something. But, um, but yeah, you know, Dylan and I have also learned a lot from our relationship as business partners and brothers. I think about how to, to like divide that up and like, you know, cause it's hard not to always see each other and just jump into like, well, let's talk about business, but it's like, you got to shut that off. Yeah. Like, you got to turn that off at some point. Yeah. You got to get back to the roots of, you yeah. know, like, why did we even start this? You know, yeah. like, you know, I mean, obviously being a brother, but anyone that also has like a friend, I mean, it's like, and I mean, you and I have another company together that I'm mm-hmm. part of. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think that that's, you just learn how to manage that much like you do anything, but you mm-hmm. know, it's, there's still life going on. Oh yeah. So it's I mean, hard. It's hard. Kels and I definitely had the issues of where there were times where we were, you know, married. Obviously we had a, you know, it, it was almost like when I would come home because she worked from home and I worked from the building. Yeah. It'd be like, I come home and it's like catch up about work. And it's like, well, where's time for like, us being husband and wife, yeah. you know, so that, that was something we worked through. I mean, now it's, we barely talk about Durai cause we have Alicia running it and sure, you know, we will have conversations every so often, but they're very brief and, um, strategic, you know, chats about specific items versus like, we need to sit down and hammer this out, yeah. you know? So that's definitely been, uh, that's hard to do. It's very hard. Yeah, yeah, and and I uh, I think I've learned about myself a lot is that, you know, and this is just different personalities between my brother and I, but you know, I always have the mindset of like, if you just work, like it'll happen. And it's not to say that Dylan doesn't work, but like I've had to check myself to where I'm like any nine to five job. Someone called me at nine thirty and was like, you know, just like going right into like, Hey, like you got a minute. It's like, no, I really don't. Like you could have scheduled this ahead of time. And so I think just differentiating that, like, okay, we have a business relationship and then we have a personal relationship. Like, and there are times that, you know, we really need to be personal. And then there's also times where you're like, Hey, we need to get on WeChat because the factory is talking to us and it's, you know, 1030 AM or 1030 PM. Mm-hmm. I remember one call at one point and so thankful to have a partner, but like, I remember even like, I remember like I fell asleep on the call and like, Dylan's like nudging me, you know, cause it's like one in the morning, our time it's morning over there. But you know, it's like, there are those times, but that's not very often the rest of it, you know, just to protect your relationship, like keep it a little more business focused. Well, but, at the time you had kids and your yeah. new baby probably well, it, at the time. Yeah. Oh, oh, and a brand new baby. And you know, and now I got two kids and you know, yeah. it's funny to like look back and, and now Dylan has a kid and, and now Dylan, Dylan has a oh, kid. I finally and, get it yeah, now. Yeah. Now that he's was like harder than I thought. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it is. Yes. Shout out to anyone with uh, much like owning a business. You know, once uh, once you do that or once you have kids, it's like a secret fraternity where you're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, oh. you've done it much like you. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kelsey makes it much easier for me than I give her credit. Though. Oh, man. I couldn't imagine doing it by yourself. Yeah. I Yeah. Unreal. Well, then let's, let's summarize some of the field notes, the takeaways. Okay. And, you know, you've brought up a few good ones. What would be the main ones that you'd want to leave behind for another entrepreneur? Um, anyone starting out? Um, you know, a couple things that, 
you know, and I kind of mentioned from a fundraising standpoint, I would try to solidify as much information as you can beforehand. And then I would probably raise an additional 20% because you're going to need it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that when you are raising money, you know, I've had a lot of people that have come to me that are like, hey, I've got an idea. And I'm like, if it's a product, I kick them over to Jason. And they always ask me, you know, what are your thoughts? I'm like, raise a little bit more than what you think that you're going to need because you will need it eventually, whether it's social media or anything. Um, I would remain optimistic as well. I think that there is a sense of, you know, pessimism that, you know, people that are like, oh, you know, I'm just a realist. I'm like, oh, no, you're just kind of being negative. Um, because, you know, there are doors that open for cash that I had no idea were even available. So with that, know that you're going to go into a lot of meetings and events and things that will turn out to be completely, you know, a waste of time, but you have to do them. Mm-hmm. You know, don't try to calculate it so much that you think that you know every answer and because you're going to miss out on so many opportunities if you just, you know, remain a bit vulnerable. And, you know, it doesn't mean like, you know, oh, a guy says, hey, come into this alley. Let's, you know, check this out. And, you know, he hits you on the head. I'm not saying that. But, you know, you're <laughs> going to go into a lot of meetings that, you know, you just take and you you can begin to sniff them out, you know, down the road. You're like, oh, this guy's, you know, just trying to scam me or you know, this PR guy is asking $15,000 and it's not going to do anything. So remain optimistic. Know that you're going to learn a lot along the way. Develop some habits that you allow yourself to turn off as well because it's super easy just to stay on your phone all day and to not experience anything that's happening around you. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's hard to do. It's very difficult to do because it's so easy to be on all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's going to certainly take away from, you know, even if you're single, but certainly, you know, if you're in a marriage, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, don't forget to uh, put your phone down and open your eyes sometimes. So. Yeah, Kelsey gets pissed at me for that. Oh, bit. yeah. No, I'm just like, well, I'm mid-conversation, but I just need to shut this off. Yeah, shut it <laughs> off. Yeah, well, my four-year-old told me the other day, he said, you didn't hear me because you were on your phone. And I was like, oh, jeez. Oh, bro. You're, but I was like, you're totally right. Let me yeah. put this away right now. So, you know, working on it. Yeah, but that's tough to do. But, you know, uh, try to remain present, uh, raise a little bit more capital than you think that you're going to need, and uh, go to people that have done it sooner than later and really be genuine about don't try to find what, you know, advice you want to hear. But like, take it and be genuine. Read books about people that have done it. Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the guy that started Nike. Mm -hmm. I listen or read that at least once a year because it's like a guy that grew a company, a products company. And, you know, it's like it'd be a hell of a coincidence if these people with successful companies were just super lucky. It's like, no, they did things that, you know, that were smart and that you can also emulate. So, yeah, learn from others. Great. Yeah. Great finishing note. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) And there we have it. Tyler Green, Cash. Thanks for listening in. It was a great episode to talk about and learn his experience and how they applied that to build cash and the the product that you see today on their website. He had some great takeaway field notes. Like, for example, it's better to ask people for help earlier than later. It's something that I always tell entrepreneurs and and lure out of them where there's no such thing as a, a entrepreneur that really knows what the hell they're doing. They don't necessarily know what they're doing. And if they're afraid to ask for help, it's always better to ask them if they need help, if you're in the position to give them help. Or if you are an entrepreneur and you're starting your new business, don't be afraid to ask people that have already gone through it for help. And if they say no, then, you know, whatever, ask someone else, you know, it's, it's so much better to learn 
over a conversation with another entrepreneur that's been through it or in the process of going through it to where you can share the struggles and learn from each other. I don't think anything beats that. I think that's the most valuable way to learn. That's especially how I learn personally. And it's better to do it sooner than later. And at the end of the day too, I feel like no matter how big your business is, if you're also not asking for help and having conversations even later, you know, you're, you're not growing and there's always going to be new challenges and stuff to deal with as you grow your business. So it's worth getting the habit of doing it very early. Also a good point. It's like, just got to stay nimble. You know, you, you just don't know what's going to come up, especially with the last couple of years or I guess three years now with this whole COVID thing that happened and what that did to supply chain, especially for companies like ours and cash and that dealt dealt with the supply chain changes with the increased importing costs and freight costs and all that stuff. You know, a point he said that works in some cases, but also not is raise more money than expected, especially if you have a, an investor that you're working with and they're willing to give up more. That does make sense. You know, if you're going to deal with one person, one investor, one check, why not ask for more that'll give you just more longevity about what you do with it. It could, you know, come and help you when you least expect it, when you have that little bit of extra cash to get through something. But also it prevents you from having to go back more consistently for more money, which can definitely be valuable. But I say, if you're doing that, I would say plan for the lower amount and still execute like you raise the lower amount, keep that extra cash for rainy days because rainy days happen no matter what versus, you know, raising more money and spending more money. And then all that cash could be depleted pretty quickly. So definitely plan lean. And then when you do raise the money, I think utilizing it as an intelligent way is definitely the way to go uh, no matter how much you raise and then remain optimistic. Obviously it's just like hard being an entrepreneur. So staying positive can help bring those vibes up and keep things going in a positive way. Cause it's super hard to be an entrepreneur, you know, whether it's internal conflicts, external conflicts, you know, having bad months or bad weeks or bad days, it's always a challenge, but definitely staying optimistic and looking down the road can help lift you up and get you through those challenges because they're, they're going to happen. It's like inevitable. So staying positive, not only while the challenges are happening, but I also feel like it's important to stay positive around those conflicts uh, to get through them and look at the positive sides of them and it'll, it'll, it'll help get through them and it'll probably help you make better decisions just because of your mindset. Great points from Tyler. You know, I wish we could have had Dylan in here too. I just didn't have the setup for it, but you know, I appreciated the time. It's always fun to catch up with him. We've done it plenty of times on the golf course, and this is a great conversation. So check them out on all their social platforms and their website, trustcash.com. And also thanks for listening and watching and follow us on all of our social media platforms as well. See you next week. 